If the Bible teaches us anything, it teaches us that the God of Israel is a God of promise. He is a God of promise, and He keeps His promises to His people. He never fails. He keeps His promises. What He has promised, He will do. Count on it. Let's turn now to Hebrews 6. We'll break in at verse number 13. The Bible says, And when God had made a promise to Abraham. Do you know how many times the word promise appears in the Bible? Well, I'd like very much for you to look that up sometime and find out. That way you'll be able to remember it more. God made a promise to Abraham. And because he could swear by none greater, he swear by himself. That's a significant statement. So God is going to swear by his very own name to the promise he's going to make to Abraham. For the Bible says, saying, surely... I will bless thee and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath of confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God willing more abundantly to show the heirs of promise. Have you ever asked the question, who are the heirs of promise? And who was the promise made to? Very significant questions. Who are the heirs of promise? And to whom was that promise made? The Bible has the answer to those questions. To show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, the unchanging nature of God. That by two immutable things, your faith today as a believer, as a believer is resting on two of the greatest premises found in Scripture. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. Think about the language we're reading. There are two promises that our God has made that it's impossible for him to lie. That we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. We live in a very dark time of history. We all need hope because hope is what fuels faith. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So the Bible says that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hope, hold upon the hope set before us, which hope, we have as an anchor of the soul, 
We live in a time when you need an anchor. If you are not anchored in something that is immovable, you are likely to be uprooted and carried away in the storm that is coming upon America, that is coming upon the world. We are moving toward the day of judgment in this nation and in the whole wide world. There are major issues coming together in the world today that are unprecedented in time and history. So this is no time to be on a spiritual vacation where you are not certain that you are anchored and immovable in Christ. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which entered into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God our Father, we thank you this morning that you are the great shepherd of the sheep, that the folks that are gathered here today <clears throat> are your sheep, that you are their shepherd. And living God, I pray today that the power of the Holy Spirit and that the authority and authenticity of the Word of God would convict our hearts and bring us to the ultimate realization that apart from Christ, we have no anchor. We have no hope and are lost from the commonwealth of Israel. So guide us, great Jehovah. Lead us as your people and guide us through the disorder the chaos and the darkness of the 21st century into the light, into a north star setting where we have a compass, we have a light that shines bright in a world of darkness, and that is the Word of God. O blessed Christ, hear us and guide us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. So what are the two immutable things upon which we can anchor our lives? Well, the two immutable promises contained in Hebrews chapter 6 is the promise God made to Abraham, a promise which was confirmed by the oath which God himself sware. The promise and the oath that confirmed it. Those are the two immutable things upon which our salvation is resting because when Christ suffered death upon Calvary's cross, when he rose from the tomb, those great insurmountable events were built in confirmation of the Abrahamic covenant of promise. The covenant, unconditional covenant God made with Abraham is like the spinal column in your body. Every other covenant, new covenant, old covenant, conditional and unconditional, issue out from the un.
unconditional covenant of promise which God swore to Abraham and confirmed it with an oath, confirmed the promise with an oath which he swore by his own name that he could not lie, could never change that immutable covenant. And our security today is based upon that solemn oath that God entered into with Abraham. We are the covenant seed of Abraham. And as the covenant seed, we are heirs of the promise, heirs of the oath, and we are the children of God, and He is the one that must fight the battle of the ages. We may do all that we can do, but our hope is in the God who has made the promise that He will not lie, that He will not change His mind, that He cannot change His mind, because the promise is resting on the surety of His own Word. The Abrahamic covenant does not stand disconnected from the rest of the Bible that preceded it. So let's see where the Abrahamic covenant is resting. Where do we go in the Bible to find the promise that emerged in the Bible as the Abrahamic covenant of promise? Now we're all very familiar with the Bible. We are Bible, a Bible-believing, a Bible-reading, a Bible-believing people, I pray. The first chapter of Genesis contains 31 verses. It gives us a story of creation. The Bible is a wonderful book of truth. Lays out the entire creation in chapter 1. In chapter number two, it sets forth the creation of the Adam kind, Caucasian, white race of people. And it places them in dominion of the earth. In Genesis chapter two, God gives to Adam and his posterity the protocol for taking dominion of the earth. Adam enjoyed conditional immortality, conditional on his obedience to the call of dominion and of the creation lordship over which he was placed. So long as he was obedient to the command of God, Adam enjoyed conditional immortality, as did the woman Eve. They could have lived forever. God ordained marriage. He ordained the family. And He gave every prerequisite for taking dominion of the earth. And those principles live today with every much as, as much force as they ever had in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 2, we have a perfect world. There was no death for Adam kind people. They had conditional immortality. Imagine a world without hospitals, a world without cemeteries, 
a world where there was no death, a world where there was no sickness, no sorrow, no tragedy, nothing that we would characterize as to our world today. But something horrific occurred in Genesis. You're familiar with that. Into this paradise, there entered in Genesis chapter number 3, and the 24 verses of that chapter, a destructive tempter who walked into the Garden of Eden. And that serpent in Genesis 3 that injected the woman Eve with the venom of sin, a virus of sinful poison, so infected that woman and transformed her from her celestial position to one of a terrestrial position. She gave of that fruit to her husband who willfully partook of the fruit and he too became infected with the virus of what we now call sin nature, which now is imparted to all of us because Adam is our federal head. For by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. That's Romans 5.12. It's a classic verse. Everybody ought to know that. So now you and I are faced with the awesome reality that in this life and in this world, we would be headed for eternal judgment, alienation from God, and a condition that the Bible terms as hell. What saves us from that condition is the blood of the one who rose from the dead after he had suffered death at Calvary. And that is the essence of the Abrahamic covenant. The coming of a redeemer. Turn in your Bible now to the most significant verse in Genesis 3 and the box top verse for the entire Bible. Genesis 3, verse 15, after sin had entered into the world, and Eve suffered snakebite from the serpent, and Adam then shared in the venomous poison of that shameful condition, God held a trial. He brought the serpent, the woman, and the man into, judge, into accountability. God held a divine court. One day God will hold judgment again and God will judge everyone who has not already been judged of their sin through repentance and confession of the blood of Christ and come to that confession, that state of repentance and sealed it with the baptism for the remission of sin. 
So every one of Adam's race, every Israelite is an Adamite, not every Adamite is an Israelite. But every one that has failed to come under the blood through confession, repentance, and baptism will be judged and the judgment will be unmistakably long, enduring, and permanent. So let's read what God tells us in Genesis 3.15. Now this is probably the box top verse for the Bible. I would call it the box top verse for the entire Bible. There are more than 31,000 pieces in the biblical puzzle. If you spread 31,000 Bible verses out on a huge table, imagine putting them all together if you did not have some form of a pattern into which they, or a mosaic into which they fit. Genesis 3.15 is the box top verse that allows you to put the pieces of the Bible together and without it, you'll be struggling with some of those pieces all your life. But with it, the pieces will all come together. So let's read that verse together. Genesis 3.15, God is speaking to the serpent. Now, you gotta, you got to be uh, somewhat respectful of the Word of God and the use of biblical metaphors. St. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. Think about it. God tells us in... The Word of God in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, that Satan is the God of this world. St. John tells us in chapter 16 of his gospel that Satan is the prince of this world. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter number 2 calls him the prince and power of the air. Guess who controls your television? The prince and power of the air. The apostle Peter says that we ought to be sober and vigilant because Satan is as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. The apostle James, notice all these are the words of the apostles. The apostle James tells us in chapter 4, to resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, sadly, Eve failed to resist the serpent because she was a deceived woman. She did not knowingly buy the venom, the poison of the bite of the sermon of the serpent. It just occurred because he deceived her. Adam willfully knew what he was doing and that's why he bears the ultimate responsibility. So this is what Genesis 3.15 says. God speaking to the serpent says, And I, that is God himself, will put enmity, that's hatred, 
That's hostility. That's anger. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now there's a lot in that verse to unpack. And it is not our goal to unpack it here this morning. But you need to remember that there's going to be hostility or enmity between the serpent and the woman. Now, in that hostility and enmity, Satan won the battle with Eve. He did. He won the battle. She was fallen from grace and fell into his camp. She became allied with Satan. It will take centuries before another woman will untie the knot that Eve tied in Genesis. But another woman from the lineage of the Messianic seed will untie the knot that was tied in Eve's deception in Genesis 3. Irenaeus, a second century theologian, said that the Virgin Mary, in the conception of Jesus, and the miraculous conception that it was, because Mary was the bearer of God, her egg was not used. Turn in your Bible and let's read about it. Luke's Gospel, chapter number 1. And if you'll notice in verse number 30, chapter 1 of Luke, chapter number 1, verse 30. And the angel, this is Gabriel, said unto her, Mary, fear thou not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb. A woman never conceives in the womb, but this will be a different kind of a conception. And she shall bring forth a son and call his name Jesus. He shall be great, shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his servant David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. These are powerful words. Then said Mary unto the angel. How shall this be seeing? I know not a man. Now this is a really good question. How will Mary conceive a child when she is a virgin Girl. The Bible gives us the answer as no book can. So let's look and see what happens here. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. This is the person of the Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. 
Mary is being miraculously overshadowed and the God of Abraham is planting 46 chromosomes in her womb. Not the fallopian tube where pregnancy takes place. Remember Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman was to crush, bruise the head of the serpent. The, the woman has no biological seed. Mary is the only woman in the history of the world that gave birth to a child without the implementation of a man's seed into her body. God put the seed in Mary's body because the, the seed that will be upon Calvary's cross must be a lamb without spot, a lamb without blemish, a lamb without sin nature. Jesus was a lamb without blemish, pure, undefiled, sinless lamb of God, and the only one of Adam's race or of the seed of Abraham that was ever absolutely sinless purified and holy to be the sacrifice for the redemption of his people in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant of redemption. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her that is called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, this is when Mary untied the knot through the blood of Christ and the promise of redemption. And Mary said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. In that instant, a virgin girl undid what Eve had tied together in sin. Now, she didn't do it on her own merit. It is the power of the blood that untied the knot. The power of the blood of Christ that made possible the overcoming victorious victory over sin. When we look then at Genesis chapter 3, it contains a twofold promise that is so immutably, unchangeably, that we need to know what that promise is. It is the Abrahamic covenant of promise, the Abrahamic covenant that enables all of us here today to know how salvation comes about. 
And the Abrahamic covenant is resting on the idea that there is a messianic lineage through which Christ will come. Eve gave birth to fraternal twins, Cain and Abel. The Bible tells us that Cain, 1 John 3, 11 and 12, was of that wicked one. Abel was the seed through which the messianic line would come. Cain cut that seed off. When you read your Bible, Seth was the substitute that replaced Abel. Genesis 5 is the name listing for all ten generations between Adam and Noah. Ten generations. That lineage is not only the messianic lineage through which ultimately Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve tribes and the millions descended from them are descended, but we need to remember the Messiah will also come through that lineage so that he may save the very people from that same lineage because Jesus came as a seed of Abraham, Hebrews 2.16, to be a kinsman redeemer. He did not come to save the world. He came to save his own. I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel, Matthew 15, 24. The Bible tells us in John's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning in verse 26, these powerful words. Jesus is standing at a particular place when the words of John 10 are recorded. Beginning in verse 26, the Bible says, But you believe not, because you are not of my seed, my children. My sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. If Christ bought you by his blood, he will not lose you. If Jesus bought and paid for you, he does not lose what he buys and pays for. The Bible goes on to say, in John 10, it tells us, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus speaking says, All that ever came before me are thieves and liars, but the sheep did not hear them. Sheep people have no ear for Buddha. Sheep have no ears for any false religions. The sheep people know the shepherd. When he speaks, they know the shepherd. He came to save the sheep. They are the confirmation of the immutable promise made to 
Abraham, secured by the oath that God swore by his very own name. Today, we are the heirs of that promise made to Abraham. So let's look real quickly at that promise. In Genesis 12, chapter number 12, we have these beautiful words. Now the Lord Jehovah had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred. The word kindred is very important in the Bible. It's a word that appears many times been greatly abused by 21st century preaching. Depart from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great. Thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, Curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That is the beginning of the Abrahamic covenant. It embraces great material promises, great spiritual material blessings, but more than that, it promises redemption. Salvation comes out of redemption. Redemption and salvation are not opposing theological terms. You will not have salvation unless there's been redemption paid. Salvation is the application of the redemption made at Calvary. Every time Jesus calls someone out of the darkness, they have received the blessing of redemption. Salvation, then, is the fruit of redemption. It's the application of that wonderful uh, truth that's made. Genesis 13, 15, 17, and 22 elaborate on the Abrahamic covenant. In due time, Abraham and Sarah pass on. The covenant is confirmed in Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac is the child of promise. They pass on and the covenant is passed on and established to Jacob and his family. And in due time, Jacob becomes the father of 12 sons. Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. Manasseh, Ephraim, and Benjamin. Dan, Asher, and Naphtali. And out of those 12 tribes, the tribe of Levi, Joseph being a double, birth, a double uh, blessing tribe, Ephraim and Manasseh, there's, with Levi, there's going to be 13 tribes. There's 12, remembering that Manasseh and Ephraim, Ephraim both come out of Manasseh. From that family of 12 sons, 12 tribes, nations, come hundreds of millions of Caucasian people. 
that peopled America, all of Europe, Scandinavia, the British Isles, Australia, New Zealand, portions of South Africa, New Zealand and other places of the earth. In 1900, the white race was the predominant race of the earth. Today, because we have abandoned and rejected the God of Abraham, because we have scorned his law, repudiated his covenants, and rejected the word of God, we are becoming the minority race of the earth. In 1950, America was 90% white. Today, the percentage has dropped precipitously. Some experts believe it is now about 42% or less. The white race is being swallowed up in a sea of color. And our future and our hope today is resting on the immutable promise of God that he will forever remember the covenant made to Abraham. So we need to have that anchor point as I read from Hebrews chapter number 6. That is the anchor point upon which the, the crucifixion and the res resurrection is resting. And I trust and pray today that we will remember that we are the heirs of the promise. God is a God of promise. God never fails to keep the promises that he has made. By his own name, he has sworn to be a covenant God to his people without change, immutably faithful to his covenant, that is our hope, and upon that hope, we can build for the future in a world of darkness. We do not have, we do not have to walk in the darkness of this world. We can come into the light of Scripture and live by the precepts, the moral laws of the Bible. Young men can find a wife and do what God told Adam in the beginning. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, shall cleave unto his wife, and the twain shall be one flesh. God ordained marriage, because marriage is the foundation for the family, and the means by which children are to be born into the world. And there is no viable method or plan for children to be born outside of marriage. Marriage is God's plan. The family is God's ordained plan for the dominion of the earth. So we need to go in the business of building families, not childless families, but families that are doing what God commanded Adam kind in the beginning. Be fruitful, multiply, fill up the earth, and take dominion. Those who live by God's immutable laws, 
those who are faithful to the covenant and live by the laws of God with an unyielding faith and passion for Christ will be here when Christ returns to set up his kingdom. God will not fail his people. Jesus said, occupy till I come. And we ought to be doing that in every way that we know how. So may God bless us, guide us, and keep us as we, his covenant people, endeavor to live in the promise that God has made to his people. God is a God of promise, and what God has promised, he will do. Let's be standing.